This is The Fourth Revolution by Bartel, a podcast on the technology driving change in manufacturing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Fourth Revolution by Bartel. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Today's episode is especially special because we're taking our podcast time to get insight into the industry, careers in manufacturing, and the impact of Industry 4.0 from someone who's been in AEC for 30 years. She's been everything from a general manager to a vice president, to COO, to director of operations, and she's currently president and chief executive officer at Pettibone. So I'd like to welcome Barbara K. Philibert. Barbara, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. Um, you know, we're going to get into your history. We're going to get into your really unique career. Uh, but before we do that, I, I have to let our audience know you are also on the board of trustees for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Museum. Um, how did that happen? Yeah, I, I think you you, you got to give me the rundown <laughs> for how, how you became a, um, a a name that can that can have so much say in the rock and roll community. It's very cool. <sighs> No, it is. It's very, very cool. So I spent about 11 years of my career in Cleveland, which is a fabulous city, Cleveland rocks. And I worked for a company that really believed in giving back. So we were encouraged to be on boards and to give back to the community. And um, my boss came in one day and asked me what I said, you know, music, um, arts, animals. So in addition to being on the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I also have to do a shout out. I was on the board of uh, directors of the Cleveland Animal Protective League, which is a great rescue organization. But when the opportunity came up to um, get nominated to be on the board of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, of course, I said, yes, please put my name in the hat. (laughs) And it has been phenomenal. Even though I've um, moved from Cleveland, my husband and I left about a year and a half ago, that is one thing I wanted to maintain, and it is an amazing organization that does so good, not just for rock and roll, but also for the greater Cleveland community and really people that um, love and want to learn more about music all over the world. Yeah. What about the music community really speaks to you? I like how people are just trying to tell their story. In most cases, at least the music that I'm attracted to and the music that catches my eye, it's about an artist really trying to tell their story. And when you look back at the roots of rock and roll and the, and the roots of great music, it's, it's about something, right? You could, you could tell what Elvis was like by listening to his music. You can help get an understanding of what the 60s were like by listening to their music. And that's one of the great things that the Rock Hall does. It's part of their mission to educate and to inspire people through music. And when you really look at the roots in the history of music, you know, the protest songs, the folk songs, um, just the individual um, wonderful storytellers that write lyrics, you know, like Bob Dylan. Um, It's interesting. I, I like people. I'm fascinated by people, and I love hearing their story. Well, we're gonna have to do a whole other podcast on just that because I could I could go on and on on Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and oh. some of those some of those classics that my dad would play for me. Um, so growing I up. had the great honor of being part of a very small concert with Graham Nash. 
Oh, wow. And, and talk about somebody who wants to keep that flame alive of great music, of artistry. And he really, he, he sat up on the stage and he played his songs, but in between he told the story of his life, how he grew up and his parents and how in working class England, it was very rare that, you know, his parents encouraged them to be artists. And yeah. what a neat story to listen to. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> not often do you get a scenario where, you know, your parents struggling in in an industry that you know is probably not paying them much is now are now encouraging their kids hey you know what instead of contributing to the family instead i want you to pursue your passion and i want you to like break out of this cycle i mean that all, all that is very inspirational um and it's definitely what a, something what a that, gentleman too i mean yeah, he's right he's, yeah he's just what you want a rock star to be <laughs> yeah yeah i love that well, you know, I'm, I'm glad we prefaced this episode of the podcast with storytelling because that's what I'd like to focus the first uh, first chunk of this podcast on is really telling your story, Barbara, as a leader in manufacturing and really dissecting your journey and using it to pinpoint key moments in manufacturing's history as well as just kind of use it to, to look ahead as to what, what's to come in manufacturing, what are some issues we have today, how can we solve them using your insight. So um, I think we need to start at the beginning. So um, when you entered the industry, what did it really look like? You know, what was innovative 30 years ago? What was the makeup of the workforce? All that good stuff. Give us kind of a, a rundown of what it was like to, to walk into that factory floor on your, your first day of work and, you know, what did the industry look like? Well, I had never been in a factory before. I came out of college, out of graduate school, basically overeducated and underexperienced, if you will. And a great corporation called Menasha Corporation, family-run organization, well over 150 years old, took a chance on me um, to design curriculum for their technical workforce. And as a result, I needed to travel and take my first business trip down to a factory. And um, I walked in never having been there. And it just felt like home. It just made sense to me. Um, I have a mechanical aptitude, so I got that. Um, but I understood the people. They were very much like the people that I was raised with in rural Iowa. And I think the thing that strikes me most from your question of what did it look like then, it was very much an American Midwest-based culture of good people that really just wanted to come in and do a good job and go home and live their lives. And they were proud of what they made. Um, now it's certainly 30 years later is much more global. Yeah. And you're dealing with different cultures, different people, um, different currencies, different tariff issues, for instance, you know, that's in the headlines right now. I think if anything, it was simpler then. Now it's yeah. much more complex. Right. And with that complexity comes benefits, also comes new challenges. Um, right. So let, let's pinpoint some moments um, in your leadership career and some of the things that you learned about the manufacturing industry um, that maybe we can use to apply to where we're at today. Um, a big one that stands out to me is your, um, your position of director of operations at Poly One, um, which I, I think is a crucial kind of position to have in manufacturing, especially in that late 2000s era when I think we first started to get hints that data was going to drive the future of manufacturing. 
um, you know, it was kind of the, the beginning of industrial IoT being more prevalent in manufacturing. And being director of operations, you probably got to get a feel for the impact of data on efficiency and on um, overall operations in manufacturing. Right. And, you know, Poly One being a publicly traded company was kind of ahead of the curve, really well-run organization. And they were launching, for instance, into Six Sigma as a discipline in the culture. And that was the first exposure I had to Six Sigma. And not only using data, but starting with the basics, can you even get the data to run your business? And then what do you do with it? How do you optimize your processes, map your processes? Um, how do you use Six Sigma and data in conjunction with Lean, which most of us had been doing for quite a while? And again, the global aspect comes into it. Um, Poly One had invested in ERP systems. They had SAP, which is a phenomenal system. So we were easily able to get the information that we needed to improve our performance to our customers. We didn't want to be commodity resin manufacturers. We mm -hmm. wanted to be solutions providers. And you couldn't do that until you could really gauge how you were doing, not only on you know, the delivery of the product, the quality of the product. And that's really where data became important. And then going back to the customers, sitting down with them in scorecarding sessions saying, hey, here's what we did, here's how we did. Um, it was great. And talk about, from our previous question, the change in um, manufacturing, how it's changed in 30 years. That was my first assignment as director of operations at Poly One in Asia. And I'll never forget going over to China um, years ago for the first time, sitting in a meeting, conducting in, in Mandarin, and the only thing I understood was the data. But because I understood the data and I could follow the numbers and I could follow the trends um, and I could follow statistics, it made sense. So what a universal language data has become. And yeah. well, really, data has always been. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we're starting to see that universal language make its way down from just, you know, your, your higher level C-suite conversations in manufacturing all the way to you know, the, the professionals on the floor um, and the way they have to utilize right. data and the way that's changing their day-to-day -day, um, is, is a whole other conversation, one that we're actually going to explore here in a little bit. Um, so teaser for okay. the audience. Okay. But, um, <laughs> but we're, we're going to continue here with um, some more points from your career. Um, you know, after you spent some time at Poly One as director of operations, you then went to Odie. Um, you were there from 2009 to 2017, and you served as president and COO. So you continued, or you continued this trajectory in operations, um, and then took on even more responsibility as you led this company forward for almost 10 years. What were some trends that continued to pop up in manufacturing that you had to face, both the, the good ones and the not-so-good ones? Um, I'm guessing data had a, a big part to play in those almost 10 years. Um, but yeah, give our audience some perspective as to what things came up as a leader in manufacturing that you had to deal with. And Odie was just a, a wonderful place to spend that many years of my career. And um, much like Poly One, they needed to get data, right? But, but Odie needed to start with new information systems, um, mapping processes, determining processes, 
Um, they had grown very rapidly because they have great brands and they needed to consolidate that information and data into one system. That was a big overhaul and a big cultural change for um, Odie in general. And once we got that data, we all looked at each other and said, okay, now what do we do with this? Yeah. So it really wasn't a wonderful opportunity to do something for the first time in my career. And what we did is we brought in um, a master black belt and we started our own Six Sigma program. And um, it was just a wonderful thing to be part of it. We had a great master black belt. And for those of your listeners that um, are maybe not familiar with that term, maybe they've heard of green belt or black belt, a master black belt does additional training so that they can train others. And to have that resource inside the company was wonderful. And we were able to train not only accountants or plant managers on Six Sigma, not engineers who probably had a lot of those um, tools taught to them during their schooling, but um, press operators, forklift drivers, supervisors, who maybe have never been exposed to those tools before, but they got into it and they really found, you know what? I'm good at this. I can use this. Yeah. So it, it really was transformational for Odie. And you can see it in, you know, just how they're getting their brands out there and how they professionalize the business. Really a wonderful story to be a part of. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, um, you know, the, the fact that you placed a lot of emphasis on education and lifelong education to um, you know, your employees at the company, I think is, is really important and probably helped set the stage for what was to come, which was a, an almost complete overhaul of the skill sets that uh, professionals in manufacturing needed to maintain their career. Um, you know, as, as things shifted, that emphasis on, hey, it's okay to learn, you're almost encouraged to want to continue to learn and adapt, that is going to keep people in the industry longer and right. keep them more, more right. relevant. So Cleveland is a melting pot. It's, it's a great community of many different cultures. And we had a lot of, you know, different, you know, people from different backgrounds, a lot of different first languages spoken. Um, and it was, it was a grassroots company that, that came out of Cleveland. Um, but these folks didn't have a lot of professional education on manufacturing, manufacturing theory, not even talking about Six Sigma right now, but production and inventory control. Um, so we did, Odie was very supportive of bringing in APEX, the American Production Inventory Control Society, bringing in coursework and certification work and making sure that um, our employees really had the background and the tools to do their job. And now, of course, Barbara, you're at Pettibone. You're the current president and CEO. And just to help our audience better understand what Pettibone is. Um, Pettibone is a platform that is part of a larger holding company called Heiko. And Heiko owns 55 companies across the manufacturing and AEC industry. Um, they then break that down into four platforms based on more specific markets. And Pettibone is the platform for the industrial manufacturing market. Um, so being the CEO and the current president of Pettibone, I think it really gives you uh, an elevated and unique perspective to see what's happening now in manufacturing and how it's affecting different companies. You know, you can see um, 
which uh, niche markets are being affected differently, which ones have benefits, which ones have consequences. And really, you can also get to see um, you know, what the constants are in manufacturing. So I guess I want to dissect some of your thoughts, um, being now the, the president and CEO for about two years. Is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So what have you seen? What are some of the unique challenges that some of the different markets in manufacturing are facing? Well, to answer that, I need to give you a little bit of background on Pettibone. So Pettibone yeah, is, that platform's comprised of 11 different companies. And we manufacture a wide array of equipment. So we have three companies that manufactures, for lack of a better term, heavy equipment or tractors that could be used in agriculture or forestry um, or oil fields. We manufacture, have you ever um, watched a TV show or maybe been in a courtroom and you saw a court reporter? Well, right. We manufacture stenography equipment. We have mm. a company called Stenograph that is the leading manufacturer of court reporting equipment. Um, so you can, you know, that's a, that's a wide array. We also have a couple of companies that make capital equipment for the tire manufacturing industry or uh, wire manufacturers. And then we have three companies that manufacture in the plumbing industry for sewer, jetting, cleaning, um, repair, diagnostics, those kinds of things. And to add complexity, those 11 companies, we have 17 global locations. So we're all over the world. And um, also how we go to market in each one of those companies is very, very different. So it makes for a complex role as the president and CEO, but one that's very, very challenging on a daily basis because things that might be working well in a wholesale sales channel maybe aren't working right now in a B2B channel. So um, from this vantage point, the world of manufacturing continues to get more and more complex as technology plays a role with the customers, with the supply chain, and just managing through that is is fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned the technology specifically. Um, this isn't really to do with manufacturing, but it, it is representative of, I think, some of these more complexities that we're seeing um, in manufacturing. I've had several conversations with designers and architects and people sort of in tangential industries to manufacturing describe to me how their software continues to get uh, more specialized. And now instead of using one software that would work for any sort of final product that they're trying to design, now you know they're getting a software that is specifically made for designing cabinets or specifically made for designing <laughs> yes. tires, right? Like all, all that kind of specialization is really, really powerful. Uh, are, are you seeing the same kind of software technology specialization happening in manufacturing? Oh, absolutely. And, and we're going through that conversion now, too. Heiko is very, very supportive of adding technology. So we're right now um, moving through an information system process. We're launching a couple of our companies in the Pettibone platform yet this year. And we have a, a project within the next couple of years to um, get all of our companies on Microsoft D365. And the reason I bring up the, the name of the uh, provider is they have so many different modules beyond the production inventory control, the you know production operations, printing job packets, entering orders. They have so many modules out there that really help 
our sales team, our service technicians use technology to um, help troubleshoot equipment in in China, help um, see what kind of parts somebody needs in southern Texas. Maybe they have a tractor that they need something. So all this technology and what Microsoft is able to do with their D365 product, which is information systems, plus you add it on to their office suite, which is Outlook and things like that. They've really merged these, these technologies into a seamless system for our customers and for our employees. And it, it's kind of exciting. I, I kind of geek out about it, but it's, <laughs> it's been wonderful. And it's great to work for a company that um, when I came to Heiko and they had all these tools, I like, I was just thrilled. Yeah. So what are some of those specific tools? It, give me some examples of um, fresh complexities that are popping up in, in some of the companies that uh, Pettibone oversees and how that's representative maybe of some larger changes in manufacturing. So we're hardcore manufacturers, right? We have to learn how to innovate. And those skills yeah. don't really come to people naturally. We, and we also have to share best practices while keeping SGNAs low. So what we've used is Microsoft Office Suite to kind of form a community, not just email, but using Microsoft Teams where we can form councils that every one of the 11 companies has an engineering representative that sits on the engineering council. And they use that, this technology to have their meetings, to trade files back and forth, um, to ask for ideas, to ask for processes. And we formed about nine councils based on certain disciplines, whether it's marketing or engineering or human resources. And we're using this technology to create this, this virtual um, location for these professionals to get together and help them run their business. And it's just a small example of how we can use um, teams, we can use SharePoint for shared files, um, shared drawings, etc. Um, we can integrate our e-commerce systems into this. And that's just on the office suite side. On right. the D365, we can consolidate and look at data and really look across all of our companies to see where we can, for instance, get supply ch chain leverage, to see where we have common customers, for instance, things like that. Yeah, those kind of process-oriented changes are, 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 I think, the first changes any sort of company needs to make when they are integrating more detailed data into their, their workflow and into their decision-making. Because right. oftentimes, like you said, those little changes on, on changing, um, changing your supply chain um, that goes a long way. It has a, a great domino effect um, for improving ROI at the company. Right, right. Well, we can take things like cost of poor quality, make it a key metric across all 11 companies, and use our systems, whether it's the chat rooms to talk about best practices mm -hmm. or the ERP system, the D365, to really help us monitor it, trend it, and make changes. So... Um, very, very powerful. Yeah, and though that is a, a constant, I think, that you can apply to different companies in manufacturing, I think there's an even greater constant that you're seeing affect 
all aspects of manufacturing, um, and that would be the lack of skilled labor currently in the industry. Um, you know, I, I think it's something that you've felt and you've seen over your your career. Something that's become a more pressing issue, um, and it's definitely something I've talked about with plenty of people on this podcast and on other podcasts that I uh, I work on. So let's let's break it down. In your experience, um, having been in the industry for thirty years, what does this lack of skilled labor look like today? How serious of an issue is it? It's it's very serious, and it's serious uh, on a global basis. I can't think of one of our locations where we have plentiful qualified labor. And going back to the way things have changed in 30 years, when I go through a company now and I'm out on the production floor, it's the team leads, it's the press operators who are explaining to me using iPads or monitors um, or some type of screen, they're explaining to me their metrics, their data. That's very different than 30 years ago where I would walk out to a press site and they would show me what they were making. Now they're showing me how they're making it, how they're improving it, Hmm. what their trends are. That takes a very different skill set, not only for the frontline operator, but for the frontline supervisor, for the managers, and all the way up. So you're seeing not only skill sets needed to better understand how to maneuver and apply this data, changes in technology, but you're also seeing more of an emphasis on human relation kind of skills, people being able to communicate ideas effectively and have those productive conversations. Oh my gosh, absolutely. Because data is great and it's kind of fun to look at, but what can you really do with it if you cannot collaborate and work together on a team? Right. And that's why I like Microsoft's Office Suite too, is because it, it gives you those tools to collaborate and to, be, to display your data, to ask for insights, et cetera. But um, definitely going back to the, to the communication skills, the emotional intelligence, I think that we're seeing much more of an emphasis on emotional intelligence than we did 30 years ago. Interesting. It's how to motivate people, how to really step back and look at someone and understand what their motivations are, how they learn. Not everyone learns the same way. And certainly in 30 years... Um, Kids have grown up with gaming, right? They're coming into factories that have this technology and they're like a fish in water. But for those of us that have been in manufacturing for a couple of decades, this is a jarring change. And helping people bridge that gap is so important. Right. And it doesn't help that with every step, it seems like manufacturing is is evolving the skill sets that it needs to survive and to grow. Um, so, you know, like, like we said, data, uh, being able to manage fresh technologies and softwares, um, being able to communicate, being able to, um, you know, a- empathize, being able to collaborate, you know, each of those skills kind of weeds out more and more people. Um, and, and it's not like it was already super easy getting people to join the manufacturing industry. Uh, right. you know, I think that that's been part of, uh, of the struggle is that the industry doesn't market itself very well to young, fresh graduates of high school or, uh, or of college even as like, hey, a great, illustrious career can start here. One that is, is creative, 
exciting. Um, you know, you really don't hear a lot of that. Um, no, so no. then, I think it's then a huge you, issue. for sure. And then you compound that the skill sets needed continue to get more focused and more focused. I think it becomes clear why there is a, a lack of skilled labor across the board. And I think there's a lack of understanding of the greater community of what manufacturing is. Uh-huh. You know, when I came out of graduate school 30 years ago, I had no idea what manufacturing was. When I was in high school, no one asked me, do you want to be an engineer? I w- I'm of the vintage where they asked me, do you want to be a teacher or a nurse? And I didn't want to be either. Right. Having stumbled into manufacturing and, and built a career, I've become passionate about talking with high schoolers, talking about colleges, working with local community colleges, opening up our doors so that people really can see what is manufacturing? What is it all about? How can I build a career? How can I have a wonderful life where I can grow a family um, and provide for them? It, it really is just a wonderful career, and I wish that we talked about it more um, in high schools with guidance counselors I wish that we encourage the trades more. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a serious shortage of tradespeople. And when we go into our companies anymore, we're having a difficult time even starting up apprenticeship programs again because we don't have journeymen, journey people that can teach and guide these apprentices. So yeah. it's, a, it's a serious situation. And You know, I was just in Germany last week and talk about a country that really has the apprentice model down. Mm. Um, They understand the value of talking with kids early and stating, here's what you can do in in the trades. Here's what you can do in manufacturing. Here's how you can build your life. And just a robust culture of apprenticeship and journeymen and trades. Excellent to see. You know, I I just watched this video um, where young elementary school kids were asked um, to describe what an audio engineer does. Different kind of engineer, but still. Uh, They said um, uh, engineers fix things like microwaves. (laughs) So I was like, oh, okay. Well, you know, it it doesn't seem like they're informing them very well of what an engineer does, much less a manufacturer. Um, And though that's kind of an exaggeration, they're they're eight, you know, you build that up over the next 10 years, it's not like anyone's really educating them beyond that either. You know, um, just right. just tangentially learning more about the industry doesn't do much to get anyone excited. Um, and you mentioned leadership. I think that's honestly a more important focus than hey, we need to educate our kids and get them more excited. Well, yes, that is the end goal. But how do you do that? Well, we need to better educate the leaders that are in our schools to promote these careers as something viable. You know, we need to encourage leaders in manufacturing to take more of a personal stake in wanting their industry to survive and flourish and, you know, find ways to engage their community. Um, How have you seen that be effective? You know, how, how do you get leaders to step up to the plate and assume some responsibility to get young people excited to join the industry? You know, it's not hard. It really isn't. I don't think I've worked with one company or one plant where I didn't have people raise their hand to want to go talk to the schools or to want to um, talk to kids or teachers when they came in. It's phenomenal. I'll give you an example. So tomorrow here at Heiko, we're having a family picnic and we're bringing in kids not only to see where their parents work, but also to see what we do. 
And at our core, we make things, which is really cool and a lot of fun. And um, we have one of our um, Pettibone, trade name Pettibone brand, telehandlers parked out in the parking lot here. And I'm, I'm looking at it right now. Our employees are so excited that their kids are going to get to see what they make. And what I found throughout manufacturing, most people are really excited about what they do. So when you ask them to, to help the community understand it better, they're all on board. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, it's honestly a very creative profession and industry and, uh, you know, both, both figuratively in the sense that you get to put your mind to work and you get to, you know, kind of push your imagination forward with what technology can do. But in a very literal sense, you are creating every single day. And, you know, I'm sure people want to show that off. I mean, I like to show off what I do every day. Um, Why wouldn't a manufacturer? So, yeah, you know, I think... I think empowering more people to be those leaders helps too. Giving the opportunity for someone that, you know, maybe is fresh to the industry, just works on the floor, is not in a a structured management position, giving them the opportunity to step up to the plate and be a a community leader. That's all very powerful. Uh, You know, people connect to the individual, not the company. So finding, yeah, finding ways to connect to those individuals, I think will really, really help solve this lack of skilled labor. Right. And, you know, it's a great development opportunity for the employees. Like you mentioned, they get to use their leadership skills. They get to use their communication skills. Maybe they put together a presentation and whether it's teachers coming through or kids coming through or their own children coming through, they use a different skill set. So it's great for them to stretch and grow as well. Um, I want to do a shout out for National Manufacturing Day, which is always in the first part of October every year. And um, what we really find is people get excited about these kinds of things. They, they want to tell people their story, going back to stories again. They want to they mm-hmm. tell them, at the end of the day, I make something and here's what I make. Yeah. Wow. I don't think I could have wrapped everything back up together as well as you just did there. Thank you for that. <laughs> great, <laughs> great work, Barbara. No, but hey, I mean, ev- everything is cyclical. Um, so yes, you're you're very right. It is all about that storytelling. And it, it's crazy how a conversation on a lack of skilled labor in manufacturing and changes in technology and, and um, you know, educating a workforce, it all comes back to getting people excited about what they do and giving them an opportunity to communicate that to the world that that sort of mentality goes a really long way um and it's it's cool to see that leaders in the industry like yourself are encouraging that um so to kind of wrap up this conversation um and to to put a final bow on things what would you say is the next step forward to solve this issue um you know we've mentioned a lot we mentioned a lot of problems a, a lot of things that are contributing to this lack of skilled labor um, what is a tangible step that the industry can do now to help solve this? Uh, you know, something that can see immediate returns because the, the slow builders are important, but you know, people like to see things happen soon. So what, what can be done? You know, if you had to inspire the people, I'd love to challenge companies and leaders to open your doors to the community, reach out to the community colleges, reach out to your schools in high schools, sponsor shop projects. Mm. Um, go in and give presentations at the community colleges. Invite the teachers in, the guidance counselors in to your factories, to your companies to show them what you can do. It doesn't cost a lot, if anything. But the biggest things that we can do is open our doors to the community and let them know what we do. 
Yeah, couldn't agree more. Open communication is important. Absolutely. Well, Barbara, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I really, really loved our conversation. Uh, you know, I feel like we got to dissect a lot. And uh, like I said, we got to get you on a separate podcast at some point <laughs> to just talk about rock and roll and uh, and storytelling in that regard, because I feel like you've got some thought leadership to share there, too. But thank you again for joining us on the podcast. It was a pleasure getting to unpack um, both the, the positive changes that are happening in manufacturing and also some of the scary ones and what we can do to you know, approach them head on confidently and keep pushing industry 4.0 forward. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you everyone for listening to today's episode of The Fourth Revolution. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, you can head to bartellmachinery.com. You can click on the R Company tab and head down to Podcast, The Fourth Revolution. You can also find our podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. And make sure you leave a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time. Mm